You're listening to the Broadway Belters Podcast, where we sit down with some of Broadway's brightest stars to learn more about their journey behind the scenes. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Broadway Belters podcast. I am your host, Nick Ferreo, and I am honored to welcome our guest today, the one and only Christy Carlson Romano. Christy rose to fame playing Ren Stevens on Even Stevens and voicing the title character in the animated series Kim Possible, both of which aired on the Disney Channel. She also appeared on Broadway in Parade, Beauty and the Beast, and Avenue Q. Welcome, Christy. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you here today. Yeah, I feel like I know you from social media because that's how we met. Yes, and now in 2020, we're meeting virtually face-to-face. Only only the best for 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go ahead and just start at the very beginning here. Your career began super early at the age of six. You did an Atlanta production of Annie at the Fox Theater, went on to join the national tour of the Will Rogers Follies, then back out on the road with Sound of Music starring Murray Osmond. Do you remember what first inspired you about performing and what memories you have of those early years? So memory-wise, I it, it is interesting because I worked so hard as a kid and a lot of that time is kind of blacked out. Like I don't actually know a significant portion of things that happened, sure. but I do know how much training I had. Okay. Um, there was a lot of training, uh, starting with, you know, my older sisters, I'm the youngest of four, they were doing the dance competition thing competitively. So I tagged along and okay. I did every kind of sport that they were doing and dancing was one of the things that they loved doing. And performing was a very, you know, easy thing to do for a, a, an Italian American family of mostly <laughs> girls. So we were, we were, my mom, I think was just trying to push us towards towards the arts and okay. things that helped us kind of kind of uh, channel our, our hyperactivity, as she says. But uh, <laughs> the performing-wise, I, I had a love of performing very early. But interestingly enough, I've also always kind of had stage fright. Oh, wow. Always. And in fact, that's a lot of the reason why I don't do more theater. And a lot of people don't realize, certainly not this about me, but I'm sure that there's other people out there that kind of suffer from this because even at a young age, I think that while I loved performing live and felt like I had like an aptitude to do that, like I could do it, I could nail my lines, I could hit my marks. But I think that the getting in your head of it when you're on the actual stage and it's actually all happening and the letting people down, mm-hmm. I think that kind of generated a lot of, a lot of, I don't want to call it mania, but it definitely at certain points in my career came back to kind of bite me. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot of amazing memories though. I think that you know, being an eight-year-old kid at Broadway dance, you know, is, is something that's still happening. Well, maybe not now, but like I've, I've known that that's been the kind of place that has really brought up a lot of performers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I remember all of these amazing parts of New York City, even before Giuliani, you know, changed the city. And I was being clutched by my mom to go to auditions. Oh, yeah. And uh, just trying to like run from like cab or even the subway station, run straight into the train to then mm-hmm. go back to Connecticut, where I'm originally from. So right. yeah, I mean, I have a lot of early memories. It's just a matter of which chapter do we want to <laughs> do we want to open at this point. Well, after you know doing those tours, you worked as a child even before people you know knew of you through the Disney Channel. You did some film work, some regional theater. What was your childhood structure like? Were you homeschooled? Did you go to school? Were you pulled? What was that period of time like while you were working back then? Okay, so that was interesting because my mom and my family always thought that education was the most important thing. And I agree. I I still think that it is important. I do think it's a matter of the teachers. And I think, you know, it's a matter of having an open-minded school when it comes to the performers themselves. I went to public schools in Connecticut and they never worked out. Uh, I went to private schools in Connecticut. They didn't work out. The mentality of let's support this young performer, achieve her dreams. She's got talent and she's got the parent that's working to try to support her dream. And so that was definitely a conflict. And I worked really hard at trying to fit in 
mm-hmm. trying to make my marks. I never really wanted to stick out. And so while I felt like I was very special, there was this strange, almost polarizing thread in my life that started to kind of split apart. And I tried to please everybody. But I, I do think that education was a huge part of my life. So basically, I was homeschooled whenever I'd be working, but that was never what I wanted to do. I do think that would have been the easier thing to do if I had just committed to being a homeschooled kid for my entire life. If I had sat down with my mom and said, I don't want to go to school, I don't have a drive to fit in and be normal, you know, I don't want friends. But something in me, even though I was like bullied at times and I felt really ostracized and targeted, I do feel like I was fighting for an experience that maybe my older sisters and my brother were having. I just wanted that. I didn't want to feel like I was missing out. So at a very early age, I was dealing with that. And so we didn't homeschool. I did find a really amazing school, though, a lot of people know about in the city called Professional Children's School, PCS, Mm -hmm. esteemed alumni. Um, We're talking Sarah Jessica Parker, just a countless list of Juilliard protégés that then became, I'm sure, fine musicians and ballerinas, prima ballerinas that were going to School of American Ballet. And so what PCS does, and still does to this day, shout out to them, what they do is they work with your career. There are different schools that are performing arts based, like LaGuardia in New York City. There's not any that are, there is one called OSHA in, in Orange County, California, but LA, I feel like most of it's like, well, if you're here, you're just gonna be homeschooling or, you know, I don't. I, and also, I think if you go to a school in LA, it's not as foreign to the the faculty. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's more of a workaround there. But for anywhere else, if you're going to a performing arts school, they're basically saying you can't do anything else. You have to be here learning from our faculty. It's a conservatory mentality. Right. right. PCS is not that. And so okay. yeah, it was a it was a one stop shop for a lot of actors on the East Coast. Macaulay Culkin, Kieran Culkin, the whole Culkin oh, wow. family. Yeah. And then Scarlett Johansson came in um, around eighth grade, wow. and she was in my class, my graduating class. We were went to prom together. Like I oh, mean, wow. it's just really odd with who was even in my class and to see where they all kind of ended up and doing amazing, amazing things. At 14, you made your Broadway debut as Mary Fagan in one of my favorite Jason Robert Brown musicals, Parade. Were you simultaneously going to PCS during that time as well? Weirdly enough, I went back to, I wanted to, again, I wanted to fit in. I wanted the normal life. So I had been doing more and more movies, less theater at that point. I started doing things that were more on camera because I was starting to come of age and I was 14 and I was like, okay, or I was even 13 at the time that we started Parade. And I just was exploring and I think I wanted to do creative stuff, but I also still wanted to have my own life in Connecticut. So I was, you know, I was at that age and I was I was starting uh, high school. So I asked my mom if she could put me in a Catholic school with boys and girls, a co-ed one with uniforms and don't you know it. I ended up booking a show, right? And so then I have to basically, as soon as the bell rings, jump in a car and go into the city with my mom every single night. And then a couple, you know, for matinees and whatnot, I had to stay in the night before. So that was kind of crazy because I was in honors classes and I was trying to turn everything around and, and again, make everybody happy. Uh, let's just go back to Parade for a second. That okay. was, I'm sure, a wild and amazing experience, Lincoln Center. What are some of your fondest memories from from that oh show? Oh, my God. Thank you for asking that question. Honestly, <laughs> you're going to ask me questions that are going to make me so happy because, I mean, I don't mind talking about the trajectory, but I know where I've come from. And there's probably people, if they're really fans of mine, that probably have heard certain interviews. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, I know this. I know that. But there's certain memories in my life that I don't feel like I get to share because they're not along the lines of that trajectory. Um, So Lincoln Center was really beautiful inside and out. You know, I I have really vivid memories of the smell of it. I have vivid memories of backstage, like these gorgeous, amazing, massive posters that they used to hang outside. Yeah. They probably still do. Yeah. They They were renderings of those. And seeing that I was a part of this artistic community made this particular production feel very different to me. You know, I'd done Annie and I'd done, you know, uh, Will Rogers Follies, which was very vaudevillian. And you would go on tour with them. And, and, you know, our dance captain was also an artist. So he painted murals. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes people will tell me like they'll be on the road and they'll be like, oh my gosh, it's Christy Romano painted on this mural. Backstage murals and the yeah, and yeah. Back, and I knew it was something that a lot of people did, but it's really kind of fascinating now that it's a time capsule. And <laughs> so I ask like, oh my gosh, please send me these things if you're backstage. I don't know these this person, but they're a performer and yeah. they're and they're looking at you know us from days past. But this was different. Looking at those posters, knowing that I was a part of the Lincoln Center family was. And also Hal Prince, Alfred Urey. And, you know, Jason was was up and coming at the time. He was this, yeah. like, wonderkind. Mm-hmm. Everyone was talking about Jason, about being, in the, being the next Sondheim, how he was found in a piano bar. And yeah. so it felt very much like I was a part of something important. But it almost ended right before it really took off. For people who don't know maybe about what happened with that, can you just briefly discuss how that whole parade closing early situation, I what that felt like? <laughs> yeah, it definitely wasn't great. Uh, we put a lot of heart and soul into the rehearsal process. And I think a lot of people had paid their dues to get there. Carolee Carmelo. And oh, yeah. I'm not sure if she was right off of 1776, but I think it was around the time that she was really, she was really big. And yeah. she still is. I mean, she's a queen. I love her. <laughs> she's one of my biggest inspirations for, for musical theater is, is definitely Carolee. And one of the best belters, you know. Ever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> such Obsessed. a queen. Obsessed. Such a queen. And she's such a good person and such yeah. a maternal. I just remember her being so maternal, so loving. She was amazing. So basically what happened was Lincoln Center is a non-for-profit organization and we couldn't keep the lights on because Rosie O'Donnell panned Parade and she had a huge show on at the time, a talk show. And what Rosie O'Donnell said between that and then the New York Times, which also panned it, which I find fascinating because I saw Parade at the Cerritos Center for the Performing Arts and the team there did an amazing job. It almost felt like a recreation in a small theater nonetheless. And we had, you know, stage dropping down, coming up, like you name it, we had it. It was experimental theater Mm -hmm. somewhat, you know, but we had access to all these things that had we been on a regular Broadway stage, I'm not sure we would have had all of that. But since, you know, they were used to doing the operas and these massive big budget things, we were, I mean, that set is amazing. So seeing it on this small scale theater come to life, and it was actually almost two years ago that I saw it, it was so amazing. And it reminded me that it shouldn't have been panned. It should not have been panned. I'm not sure why, but I remember hearing Alfred Yuri or one of our producers, maybe even our production manager, say that the head of Livent was saying that he was going to throw our sets in the trash. <gasps> it became a very volatile ending to what uh-huh. would have other went, otherwise been a really, a really great play. Anyway, so yeah, I'm really sad that it closed early, but if it hadn't closed early, I wouldn't have got my severance check. And I wouldn't have taken it and used it to go to L.A. And none of that would have happened. Broadway and theater is the most defining points of my career. It defines every major change in my life. So parade closes, you go to L.A., you book Even Stevens. For people who are just curious about this chapter of your life, what was that audition process like? Was that your first big network experience? Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, I had done a couple of like tests and stuff. And I feel like on the East Coast, we take things so seriously. And the audition process was very serious back there. I don't think I noticed it. I just knew that I was advancing and that that, that meant that I had to be so off book. I had to be okay. so ready. Because literally, I just came off from working with Hal Prince. I just, I you know, I knew you how knew to work perform. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't soft yet like I am now. And so I was just primed and ready. And by that point, I had been in the business for how long? Like I was a veteran already. Yeah. So, you know, some people see kid actors and I don't think they realize that a lot of them have been at it for a really long time. It's not mm-hmm. an instant thing. And it, you really do commit your entire childhood to it, which is a lot of the reason why I wouldn't want to start my kids off unless I was really sure of the trajectory and, you know, the agency and the, the just the, the infrastructure of what would be happening. It's, it's something that you really need to understand before you approach that. So yeah, I mean, that audition process was really amazing. 
<laughs> obviously because I was excited that I was advancing. And I would just, I remember everything about that process from the dingy first audition in some random office building in Burbank <laughs> to the very quick turnaround callback and then meeting uh, Shia and having a chemistry read with him. And that being just so clearly how different we were. Like just, he had two different kinds of hair he looked like he hadn't showered in days. Uh, he had crazy clothes. I had just come off from, you know, pressing my Ralph Lauren suit for the audition. And literally, like, I was wearing a Ralph Lauren suit. and That's iconic. My, yeah. And even, like, the Matt Dearborn, who's the, the showrunner and the, the creator of Even Stevens, I guess, says that that was the most impressive audition that he's ever seen, only because I think he thought I was just so Ren Stevens. <laughs> I was so the character. You know, and they say that even in my acting class, they've said that auditions are one in moments. They're not necessarily one in the entirety of a read. So I think it was that moment that when I walked in, I, I embodied what they had envisioned the character to be. So yeah, I mean, that is, that is what it was. I've oh. never had a better audition. Well, actually... I, it's a toss-up between Parade. Parade's audition was fascinating. Um, I had come in and um, I had done a lot of singing auditions and I, I think belting was my thing. Okay. And I had worked a song, Since I Don't Have You, mm -hmm. and it was the song that I would go and I would sing a certain, you know, 16 bars and just wow. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they'll be like, no, keep singing. And then you'd be like, yeah, I'm doing great, <laughs> right? So funny. So I wowed Jason because I was really bluesy and scatting and, and I was only like, you know, 14 or whatever. And I think he felt like that was going to be really good for, for the character, for, for whatever it is. But he vibed and was like clapping and he oh, was wow. the one who was playing my audition. Oh my gosh. And, and uh, Hal and Alfred and everybody was in that room. So when I walked out, I had been sitting next to Anne Hathaway. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she was going in after me for Mary Fagan. This is, I've never heard this before. Is this unknown information? <laughs> I've said it in one or two interviews and no one's oh, wow. really thought to pick it up. Oh but no. But then wow. what happened was, is then I never got to audition for Princess Diaries. So. <laughs> I did hear that story. Yeah, I did so she took it from me. <laughs> you I took that and her. she took the other one back. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think I would have rather had Princess Diaries. But again, if that parade hadn't happened, the other stuff wouldn't have happened. Exactly. So. Exactly. The Princess Diaries stories, that was because you were working at Even Stevens. That's why you couldn't go to that audition, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah they had to keep me long and I was so bummed. Well. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, exactly. But I remember Donna Pascal, who played my mom on Even Stevens, she was running lines with me for Princess Diaries. Oh. I was ready to go. The audition was like ready for me, but yeah. Oh, wow. So then you moved to LA to do Even Stevens. You're around 16 when you started filming, I believe. Yeah, I was on my 16th birthday. I did the pilot at 14 and a half, and then they, they deliberated internally because Disney takes about a year to okay. really, like I think, do brand marketing, testing, and all that stuff. So then I think they were ready to go by the time they did all the prepping and the set. All of that stuff took months. We were relocating, you know, yeah. Um, and we, yeah. Who, who goes with you to LA at this point? Are you solo? Is your mom coming with you? A chaperone, guardian? What's that oh, like? Oh gosh, no. I would, I would, yeah, that's no way. I don't know how people do that. I've just heard so many horror stories about chaperones and just, just things that transpire. So I went with my mom. My mom was my, you know, momager, manager. And she, she was, you know, ready to go with me. She had gone on tour with me several times. Okay. My siblings were, you know, growing up and now two of them were in college and my brother was just, I guess, doing his own thing. But they would visit, my family would visit, but it was kind of crazy when you think about it. Now that I have yeah. kids, it's like, I can't believe she made that sacrifice for my career. Uh, and so I think at that point, though, she was very encouraged because we had put a lot of effort locally on the East Coast. But now it was like, wow, this is all coming, coming true now. Okay. So she really did. She doubled down and she, she and I got an apartment and it was in Marina del Rey, California, which is not Hollywood. It's over mm. by the beach and it's mostly retirement communities. Okay. Now I think there's gentrification happening, but it was mostly just a very quiet area. So I wasn't in the thick of socialization for anything. Like I wasn't exposed to anything, which I think oh, okay. lies on my mom's part. When did you start to feel that you were part of something that was possibly about to change your life? 
I remember going to like Wango Tango with Shia LaBeouf and Margot Harshman and they gave us tickets before we launched and they were, you know, the Disney publicity train was starting to kick up for us. And I was like, oh, okay. So we get treated special now. You know, we got, we had like a, you know, somebody was with us and like, we got to skip all the lines at Disney and like all of these things started to happen. And we were like, oh, we're special. And I think that started to hit me a little, little bit at a time, Okay, a little bit at a time. But most of all, the most important thing I think for all of us, shy included, was to be good to the fans because they Mm. were kids. You know, we were just like them. So them coming up to us meant a lot. And when you think about it, I didn't exactly have that much interaction with, with other kids. So yeah, so I think it was like fun for a lot longer than it would be for some other older people. You quickly became a Disney superstar. At one point, you made history as the first person to act in three projects airing on the Disney Channel simultaneously, them being Even Stevens, Kim Possible, and one of my favorite Disney Channel movies, Cadet Kelly. How, <laughs> how did that level of success affect you mentally at the time? Interestingly enough, the way that Disney works is that they plan everything ahead of time, everything's in the can, then you do it, and then you're famous like 10 years in the future, and that's why people still know me and know my face, and it's just kind of a weird cycle. It's it's not an instant fame. Mm-hmm. It's like a slow burn, which I'm grateful for in some ways, and so I didn't really understand it. Uh, and I'm trying to think about when I knew, but there was really no moment that I knew okay. that, oh my gosh, I've arrived. I think I was really in over my head when it came to, I'm trying to compete with other actors now to get bigger things outside of Disney, um, other females. I'm trying to grow up. I'm trying to get into college. And there was so much other stuff going on that the fame part of it for me just was inconsequential. I was like, I need to make more money. I need to do this. I need to do that. So I was really, really focused on okay. my career and my life. I was very type A. <laughs> okay. Ren Stevens. <laughs> I was. I was. Exactly. Exactly. You said that during this time, you'd be working like full days on set. You would go home to get tutored. And like you mentioned earlier, there was really no, not no, but there was not a lot of uh, normal interaction with other kids, a lot of socialization. And you started to fantasize about this normal college life. Despite being told that leaving Hollywood at the time would possibly ruin your career, what solidified that decision for you? I think it was when I started visiting colleges. Okay. And it's weird because my set was across from Loyola Marymount University, LMU, and I really liked that school. And and looking back, I probably should have just gone there. But I got into a good school. I got into Barnard which mm-hmm. is, you know, my alma mater. And I, I absolutely love them. I love that they're, you know, very strong female yeah. feminist thing. And I, I, I don't regret going there. I just think that New York, going back to New York at that time and going back into such a competitive environment, it was probably starting to burn me out. And okay. I didn't even realize that. So basically what happened was, is even Stevens was ending Mm -hmm. and I had gotten six tests for pilot season. For me, that was an all time. I mean, I'll never probably ever test six times in one pilot season ever in my life again, six tests. And I booked two pilots and then I chose one and I, I did the one and cause it was, you know, the best creators of friends and stuff like that was for Fox. And I was like, wow, it'll be so different for me to go for Disney to Fox. It'll break me out. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't go. And so I said, well, I don't worry about that. That didn't go. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to Columbia and I'm going to be normal and I'm going to do all the things that I've seen in these like movies that I've watched. That's going to be me. (laughs) I'm going to reinvent myself. (laughs) I'm famous now, but I'm going to reinvent myself. That makes no sense. (laughs) But you were, you've said that you were craving that experience that you saw in those movies, right? Those, that normal teen college campus life, which ultimately, you know, didn't necessarily happen or wasn't like it was in the movies, but then, Beauty and the Beast came your way. How did that happen? Was that opportunity presented to you? Did you go in for it? What was that like? Right. So I don't know exactly why or how, but it seems sort of random. And as an actor, when you get calls to just get into the room and given an opportunity, if you book it, you then can choose to change your life. Uh, It's not just like, okay, you can shoot for 12 days and then we'll put marketing dollars and then you'll be famous. It's like, for me theater auditions are so much more important. They really will represent something in your artistic career that will change you. 
And so booking theater for me is the highest honor that I can ever have. And theater is the highest form of art that I have ever achieved. But honestly, theater to me is, is, is where my heart is. So I wasn't loving being in college. It was, it, for many reasons, it was just hard and it's socially okay. hard. It wasn't even that the, it did end up that my, my study skills weren't up to par. But I think that was because I was so mentally distracted that I didn't know how to calm my mind. So I had to leave. And I think that was what the right thing to do at the time. And I had made a lot of friends and I had kept in touch with people, just like I tried to keep in touch with all the random people in my life. This was before social media. So really trying to have friendships when you're, you know, in so many different states and and right. you know, it was it was difficult. Let's see. So Beauty and the Beast's audition comes up. I was having issues with my throat. And so I think it was maybe tonsillitis or something or whatever it was. But my mom and I had me get checked out by a really great doctor. And he was like, you have nodules. They're pretty, they're pretty extensive. We should operate. And I don't know if the first audition for Belle happened before or after, but it must have been right after because I okay. knew when I screwed up my audition so badly for Belle that I had to get the surgery. Okay. So it was scheduled and they they waited until I was post-op and they asked me, do you want to come back in? And I said, please let me come back in. Oh, wow. I came back in and I ended up booking Beauty and the Beast. And so they had me do all these things. I did acupuncture, acupressure, speech pathology classes while I was in the show. So I'd have, I'd have my larynx massaged down because it would be up so high. Oh my gosh. From, you know, trying to belt the HOs. The tension and yeah. Yeah. So I would have that acupressure on my throat. I'd have her be going inside my throat, releasing jaw pressure and stuff like that. And then she basically worked my whole body, but really was a fantastic, a fantastic uh, acupressurist. So it was a lot of work. Yeah. And this was all during the run of the show. You're saying that you're having these procedures done to help you maintain the run. Yeah. At the time, I'm trying to think if I think it was who was on as Aida at the time. Was it Deborah Cox? It was. It was Deborah Cox. And I think she was only doing like six shows a week. Okay. And I mean, Aida, I think was way more vocally stressful, (laughs) way more than (laughs) Belle, but the physical amount of work one has to do, uh, something like Bell, a track like Bell, it, it's very physical. And I wasn't exactly the most athletic person. I'm not a dancer by any means. And so, you know, I, I was 19, sure, I had the energy, but I do think that eight shows a week was kicking my ass. And uh, it was, I had no release, like I had no hobbies. Theater felt like it was my life. And I started reading some of those posts on like theater mania. They mm-hmm. used to have like some really bitchy, like the blog section. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. Like they had the threads, the threads. And so I started wanting to see what people had thought. Like, so if I had a bad performance, I would go onto the thread and I'd be like, did somebody see that? And like, oh God. okay. Like how am I faring? Because I had a lot of critique and criticism, even from the people who were training me to be bell. Okay. And the, And a lot of the reason why I think people were okay with me was because of the ticket sales. Right. But I felt a massive case of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. When I would show up and I was this 19-year-old star with like a wrap on Times Square with my face on it, you know, lines out the door, people were like, well, what has she really got? Because it was stunt casting. Mm -hmm. And while they were doing it on things like I think they had done it for Chicago and, you know, they were starting to do things like that. It wasn't something that was still okay. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I totally got it. But what hurt my feelings about that was that I had been in parade. I had dedicated my entire childhood to the arts and I had, I felt like it was my home. So when I had felt sort of the side eye when I was at certain events or trying to perform and try to keep up, I couldn't help but feel like I needed confirmation of what was saying being said behind my back. And so I was looking for that confirmation and I would find it on the threads and it was, it was very hard. It was very hard. And I kept saying to myself, okay, well, I just got to keep going. I just got to keep going. And so, yeah, it was a hard time. It was definitely a hard time. 
How, you know, from the outside, everyone's looking at you, you're 18, 19 years old, you're leading a Broadway show, you're a star, people are there for you. They think everything must be sunshine, rainbows, butterflies, but what was going on besides checking the threads and, you know, having the imposter syndrome and dealing with that, what else was going on behind the scenes that, you know, was not helping you during this time? For sure, for sure. I, I, I was very lonely. I lived in a beautiful, like people would kill for it uh, on 10th Avenue and they put me up in a cute place, um, one bedroom apartment. I had a dog and stuff, but I didn't have any kind of relationship, intimacy. I'd, I'd gotten out of some bad relationships before that at college. So I was kind of rebounding. And I didn't have much except for like nightlife. And, you know, there were lots of clubs to go out to back then. Um, I think it was 2003 or four. And that was like a big thing to do back then was to go out and go downtown and just hop around. And, you know, there were some nights I was trying really hard not to smoke and drink, but that temptation was there. And it was it was the only way that I could get out and like be around people that were my age or that weren't working under me, I guess you could say, because I guess like technically when you're, when you're the star of the show, you feel this like responsibility to the rest of the cast and crew that like, you're like, look, I'm here. I'm going to make sure you all keep your jobs because standard, exactly set a standard. Like, please don't, Oh my God. I kind of was just lost in a way Mm. personally. Okay. And then I got approached by a psychic and it was just, I was so the perfect person to be preyed upon by a psychic that was like, I'm going to give you everything you want and I am here. And it was like my hobby. Like I didn't have Mm. a hobby. So I took on witchcraft. Like, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't think I wouldn't call it witchcraft, but I guess that's kind of what, you know, she's like, here's these candles for love. And here's this one crystal for this. And now you need to buy a bigger crystal. And I was like, right. Okay, okay, okay. And she had approached me while I was signing. Signing. Yeah, for the girls, for little girls. At the stage door. Mm-hmm. And so you started going to this woman and then you ended up spending a lot of money on her too, right? Yes. <laughs> it was nuts. It was so crazy. I look back and I'm just like, I, I was, it was just crazy. And I feel bad for my parents because it was like, they were really like excited for me. They thought like, wow, she's really, she's really coming into her own a part of them, I think, was like trying to figure out how they could benefit. But I don't think that that they didn't want the best for me. I still think they wanted the best for me. I don't think that they realized how lonely I was. Okay. That was, I, I was going to ask, Where did you share any of these struggles with your family or your parents at the time? Or were you internalizing it and just going at it alone and trying to figure it out? I really was, man. I really, okay. really was. Like, I don't think I realized how lonely I was. I mean, even in this conversation, I'm like, wow, I really was really struggling. And... You, you know, it was, I was white knuckling it. And yeah. I think I remember trying to go to therapy, trying to do this, trying to do that, but I didn't have a grasp on what was currently happening to me. And I think, you know, there's got to be so many famous people out there that are being thrown so much money that if they don't have sobriety or if they don't have perspective because they've come up from nothing or if they don't have support advocates, stuff like that around them, they are struggling and we mm-hmm. don't know it. Yeah. They're struggling big time. What was the dynamic backstage for you? Did you feel welcomed by the cast once you arrived? Did you have a good, <laughs> did, I feel like I know the answer to this, but did you have a good work environment? And I'm yeah, sure believe that- Believe it or not, I did though. I you did. did? Okay. They, were, they were really, I'd say of all of the, the community, the theater community at large, my cast was my most supportive because oh, they good. could physically see how hard I was putting myself okay. and showing up and on stage- And after when they would be going to bed, I would still be signing. Like they knew that I was doing everything I could to keep that show's lights on. When I came, it was 33% capacity. It was down. Yeah. Yeah. Real down. And when I left, it was, it was like 89, 99%. Right. So it worked like they could keep their job. There was one guy that had been there since day one and it was, I was there. Yeah. It was their 10 year anniversary and I was their 13th bell, but they, yeah. I mean, I kept the lights on so that they could last a few more years. And I'm happy that that worked for them. And I'm happy because those people were all such a family. And so I, you know, came in, I had, um, I had two beasts, Jeff, uh, McCarthy. Yeah. 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 So he was only with us for a couple months, but he was my opening beast and he was so sweet. 
I mean, Jeff was so sweet and he was old and I was young and it was like more of this like sweet thing that was just felt very Disney to me. And then Steve Blanchard comes back from wherever he was. I think he was on vacation or something. Uh And he was a totally different beast. In fact, Steve Blanchard was very much the beast. Mm -hmm. And he was older uh, and he'd had his share of bells. (laughs) <laughs> but he's a good guy. Steve was a good guy. He probably didn't love that I was stunt casting. I think maybe he'd seen so many bells come and go that like I felt maybe like a risk for the productions, the quality of the production. Okay. Steve had a beautiful voice. You know, Steve knew what he was doing. He walked around as the beast and knew knew how to put on the gear and knew exactly how it had to feel on his face. And this was his home. I was just visiting. So, you know, I kind of was very grateful for him, but it was definitely a different beast. (laughs) Okay. A very different different beast. And I do think that, I do think that he was supportive, but I do think that he was protective Mm, of of the quality of the production. So with what I was going through, that kind of was hard to, Mm -hmm. to, to feel like I was disappointing him. He doesn't know that I feel that way, but I'm sure he would, I'm sure he didn't mean for that to be the case. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you do television, you don't always get a one-on-one interaction with fans of the television show you're on. However, on Broadway, people congregate outside of the stage door every night. So what was it like to have those interactions with those little girls that were there for you? Honestly, I think it gave me life. I think it's what got me through. I mean, I even get emotional thinking about it now, especially because I have two daughters and I got a bell dress from Disney Consumer Products sent me like a bell box. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait till she can wear this. And Belle, when I did the rehearsal process for Belle, with everything that was going on, the fact that I knew that I had failed that first audition, went through an extremely invasive procedure that, you know, I had been told could ruin my voice completely. Huh. Uh, I also had my manager telling me at the time, like, oh, you should get a nose job. And I was like, I can't get a nose job. If I get a nose job, my voice will change. You know, I was getting so much feedback from so many places that I got lost in the story of being Belle sometimes. It was my only like between actually being Belle on stage and playing in the palace. And then being Christy Romano playing Belle for the little girls, it was like one big show that I got lost in, whether okay. it was me after playing Belle or me during playing Belle. It w- there was no reality. There was just those two moments that lasted mm. two hours and maybe like 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. And that was what I woke up and lived for. It was a moment in time for me. What were some of your favorite moments in the show itself? And do you remember that first night back on Broadway? You're an adult now. You don't need a guardian or a child wrangler or anything. This was your moment back on Broadway. What do you remember from that first night, maybe? So what I remember about being an adult was kind of coming into the Bell dressing room and having my own dresser. Oh, right. And getting, you know, the the makeup tutorial and I was gifted like certain things were in the room that other bells left there. Like Megan McGinnis, who was actually from Parade, was yeah. my training bell. And oh, wow. I was like, it was full circle moment because Megan is just such a sweetheart. She like is Belle. Like she just yes. like is a sweet, sweetheart. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I remember taking that as if I was getting the crown to be Miss America and being mm. like, oh my gosh, I get to be this adult in this dressing room. And I have this dresser who used to be a Rockette. And now she's my dresser. And like, look at all those beautiful dresses that are hanging up. Like those are for me as a woman to wear. It was, it blew my mind every single night. It was a lot. It was, it was (laughs) a lot. (laughs) I bet. And then then they gave me, and I'll never forget the moment of being on stage. And obviously like when I hit the ground running, all I cared about was marks, 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 this, Mm -hmm. that, this, that, this. But then the moment that I took my bow and Jeff McCarthy was there and he presented me the roses. It was like so amazing, so sweet. I remember the dress I wore was a long van green satin thing that we had a stylist pick out for me. And I had, a you know, the publicist from Bonneau and Brown, and they were all so supportive. Disney was doing everything they could to get my name out there. And I was just trying to be the, the best team player that I could be. It, it was a really, really beautiful moment, I would say. That opening night was a beautiful moment. A few years later, you had the opportunity to come back to Broadway and join the cast That's of Avenue what? Q. 
Do you see how big my smile just got? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about this one. What was your first time? Was this your first time working with puppets? And what was that audition process like? Oh my God. It was my first time ever touching a puppet, much less working with a puppet. I think that I had done a little bit of prep, like before prepping for the audition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was using my hand as I was practicing my song and okay. fine line. I think they wanted me to come in and sing and they wanted mm-hmm. to see if I could do the hand gestures while singing. And so I did. And I think again, it was stunt casting. They knew that I was of a certain age now. I was 26 and I was desperate to do something outside of LA and I wasn't working that much. And they, they wanted to get right before Christmas. There's always that stunt casting That's like after summer in the fall, right before Christmas, there's like a lull. So I had like a three month run, which was so sad because I would have done it forever and ever and ever and ever. (laughs) That's how much I love doing it. Oh, wow. I loved it. It was my, it was almost my favorite, probably. I don't know. It was the most fun (laughs) I have had on stage ever. And you know why? Because I got to wear black and the focus wasn't on me. And I got to use another voice. So it didn't have to be my voice. It could be me using my voice actor voices and having fun with that and having people engage with that. And then the content itself, the script, the songs, like they did the work for me. Oh, yeah. I didn't need to bring magic to the performance. I could just say the words and be funny. And I, I think that the magic came through that way. It was a more, you know, sit back and enjoy the, the material. The material oh. totally speaks for itself. And you know what? If there's anything that I could take away from that, it would might be that I might need to take that into going forward with theater. I might need to take that feeling that I got from that experience and try to simulate that, you know, fake it till you make it. Like maybe if I just do that, I won't have the pressures anymore of all the stuff mm-hmm. that I've experienced. Because I'm sure there are people out there too that have had negative experiences. You know, they've judged themselves. They've been criticized because it's a highly critical industry. Like this part oh, yeah. of the industry is very critical of each other and it is competitive. So yeah. Was this experience on Broadway, were you in a better place personally so you could enjoy this run a little <laughs> bit more? What, what was that like? <laughs> Uh, I wasn't shelling out major coin to a psychic in Jersey. Um, (laughs) So there's that. But at that point, I was engaged to somebody and it was not going well. And I had been drinking. I drank a lot more. Like I went out a lot more while I was doing Avenue Q. I was like, well, I'm fine. It's not as, you know, it's not just on me. They're looking at the puppets and I can party and I can have fun. And like, I've got this beautiful apartment they put me up at. I'm going to enjoy these few months. Mm -hmm. And so I somehow I did it all, you know, it wasn't that stressful for my voice that that time it wasn't. So that was fine. But I just think that I think at a certain point in your 20s, you've got to grow the fuck up. And I, I, I was at that point. I think I was reaching a limit right before I met my husband. I met my husband shortly thereafter, actually. Shortly after. Okay. I think I might have been 24 when I did Q. And then I met my husband around 26 or 27. Okay. I was kind of going into, I I had been in a darker place for a while. And then after Q, I went back to California and I didn't really have any work. So Mm -hmm. within that year, me and this guy had officially broken up. And I was like, well, nothing's keeping me here. I'm going to go back to college. And so I went back to college. Okay. And now and we're now, full circle, Nick. We're and now we're, we're full circle. Um, <laughs> one more question about Avenue Q that I have to ask before we get back into this full circle moment. You played Kate Monster and Lucy the Slut, two very contrasting characters. What did you like about each of those two ladies? Oh my God, Nick. I freaking love that question. So I think especially because, oh my God, I could spill all the tea to you. Spill it. It's just so easy to talk to. <laughs> spill so, it. So basically... So basically, let's just put it this way. Lucy the Slut was the type of person, girl, woman, that I felt like I had come up against in my career my whole life. It Mm. was not necessarily sexually liberated, but it was a particularly, because I was always typecasted as this like very smart brunette, you know, very organized. And that was Kate Monster. Yeah, totally. And I was having a really hard time branching out in Hollywood. I couldn't get any jobs. I couldn't even get Maxim to do like sexy photos of me. I can't do anything different. Everyone saw me as a very particular way and no one was hiring me. And so I was very frustrated with that. And it just seemed like I came up against this thing. Well, you're not blonde enough. You're not 
sexy enough. You're not this enough. And that was Lucy Slut. And so to me, being able to like play these two sides of this spectrum of femininity was so liberating and so fun that I got to like explode with that. And that's why I was like, this is so cool. I would love to keep playing this character. I would love to keep doing this, this track. So like you said, you ultimately made this decision to go back to school after Avenue Q and you met your husband in screenwriting class. You said that meeting him really helped you finally overcome some of those obstacles that you were dealing with. What did he teach you about yourself that you couldn't see on your own? So basically, I've always said that like being an actor is like living in a constant narcissistic purgatory where you're just like, oh. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right? Yes. It's so freaking worse. And he was like, um, yeah, so I was in the Marines. I went to Iraq. Like, you know, like I went to war and you're just an actor. Like you need to realize that there's major things happening in the world and you are not unique. And first we kind of, it took a while like to really understand that. But his patience with me was what has maintained our relationship and grown it over the years. And I hadn't even really seen the work that we were doing together. Because I like to think that there's a part of me that rubbed off on him too. Because my husband had been in the military and had had some things he had to work on. And he would be the first to tell you that. Mm -hmm. But my creative soul helped his creative soul grow. And his uh, ability to live an authentic life and live almost to the point where it's like almost too much in reality kind of was rubbing off on me too. So we really are really well matched and you know, we are not perfect. I'm not saying that we are at all, but I think we have a commitment to each other and yeah, like that was, that was growing and growing even after we got married. You now have two beautiful daughters together. And I think that people really see the world through a new lens when they become a parent. When you reflect back on your adolescence and your career now, what advice would you give to young people who are entering this business and starting this journey? Yeah, I would say be careful first, only because you and I have been talking about this. And that's why I would say that. I wouldn't want to say that to somebody that I'm talking to in general, mm-hmm. but be careful. And also look at it from a lot of different perspectives. Don't just look at it as I'm going to do this. It's going to get me the ends that I want. I think whatever you do, you should try to do it so that while you're doing it, you're enjoying it. And if you're getting the resistance and if you're getting the negativity that your love of doing that is never so confused that all of that other stuff isn't worth it. Weirdly enough, it was my mother who said, when this stops being fun, we should stop. I don't know if she meant that, to be honest, because she pushed me. But if she hadn't pushed me in some respects, I probably would have been like selling like car insurance somewhere. (laughs) I don't know what I would have been doing in my life. But, but you know, I, I would I would encourage people to do this for the right reasons, not the okay. wrong reasons. And there's so many people that can be famous for doing things wrong, you know, by taking their clothes off and like uh, doing these TikTok videos that are scandalous. And there there's just so much of that in the generation I see right now. And there's so many talented people out there. Like you'll see these people on TikTok. I just think that there's younger people that are attempting to make names for themselves And they think that automatically the only way to do that is to slut it up or to sass it up or to scandalize it. Scandal. You know what I mean? And like, that's not why we all got in the business. You know, that's not why we all love musical theater. That's not why we were drawn to performing for people. And uh, I think if that's not your first and most important objective, then that's what young people need to understand is that there's there's work that needs to be done here. And if you're not going to enjoy the work part, then you might as well just be an influencer. So if you're a young performer, really try to put yourself through training because it's the only thing that's going to matter when push comes to shove. And, you know, everyone has a different path, but there is something to be said about the work ethic and the discipline that comes with immersing yourself in a training program of some sort. Yeah, sorts. like you can, have, you can have all the raw talent in the world and have millions of views on TikTok But if you show up and you can't do eight shows a week, you're just going to be laughed off. You're going to eventually be laughed out. Yeah, it's not going to work. It's just a fun question. What what roles in the musical theater world that are already created would you like to have a, a go at? Great question. So many. I would love to get my voice in shape. Mm-hmm. And in the next five to 10 years, I'd love to take on Carolee's part in Parade. 
Oh man. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like I could do it. I really do mm-hmm. feel like I could do it. I would love, love to play Maureen, uh, in rent. I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this. When I did Will Rogers Follies, Sutton Foster was a showgirl in the chorus. And she left early. Right, right. She left the cast. And she was like a big sister to me. Many years later, when I was doing Belle, we were all doing something. And Carol Lee was there. And there's a picture of me, Sutton, and Carol Lee. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, I should frame that picture. Sutton, I don't know if she had been starting in the ensemble and chorus and whatnot, but like she did when I was eight years old and then she popped out of nowhere, I felt like, and then I saw her be like the thing, like the it girl of Broadway. And every time I've seen her do all of the things, it's given me so much inspiration. And there's a lot of things that Sutton Foster has done that I would like to do as well. Um, Shrek, I'm trying to think crazy for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I just... I need a lot more training if I'm going to take that stuff on. And again, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but I would really like to get back up there and, and to get back into the theater community. And this yeah. time I'm not going to give a shit about anything. they say. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. I was, I don't know if this ever, you know, came your way or not, but when waitress was on, I was like, Oh, she would be a great, uh, <gasps> great idea. a great Jenna replacement. Oh my it's God. On now, right. Oh my but God. Hey, <laughs> Maybe like a nice high budget regional production and like somewhere or revival. Let's something. start with that. I love Let's, that idea. Thank we're you. We're manifesting that out into the world right now. Thank you. Okay. We're putting <laughs> it out guys. You heard it here first. Jenna and waitress, Christy Carlson, Romano. Someone needs to make it happen, please. I love it. You now have your production company and you found great success with your YouTube channel and your cooking videos, which I love so much. What does this chapter of your career feel like? Do you feel like you've arrived what? in this place where you're like, you're more, you're, more of your authentic self now and you have this freedom to be creative? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, I think that it's hard because this is not the way that I would have seen my career going. Uh, You know, when I talk about the past, so to speak, it's not something that I would have said, well, I'm going to just do nostalgia content on YouTube and wait for the phone to ring for auditions and like kind of still be around in the acting world, almost like adjacent like Mm -hmm. Hollywood adjacent, but it's working and I've got a family. And if anyone knows that we all have to feed our family, it's our performers. Right. So I'm happy to do sponsored content. I do really do feel like I'm living an authentic life. So like that's important. And, um, I like the sponsors I work with. I wouldn't do anything that was like completely against my mantra and credo. And so everything that we do that's food related is a lot of fun. Cool. When I can, when I can have my husband, it's even more fun. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we're 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 webbing out. We're investing in you know camera gear, and I've directed, so that's important for me. You know, yeah. it's important to have sort of like a balance and all of that. And so I'm just trying to see what will come of my directing career and what's going to come okay. out of all of that stuff. Cool. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, friends. Let's end it with this. We talked about advice you would give to, you know, people entering the industry or parents who are getting their kids involved in the industry. But what would you, on a personal level, what would you go back and say to 18, 19 year old Christy who had arrived in as an adult and was, you know, was going through some things? What would you look back and say to her now, if you could? Initially, when you asked me that question, I thought to myself, don't be afraid. Um, I think I was very fearful. And I think that that fear of being alone, fear of messing up and fear on stage, I think that motivated me to do a lot of things that confused the bigger issue. And so I think that's what I would tell her is don't be afraid. You got this. A big thank you to Christy Carlson Romano for taking the time out of your day to chat with us. It was an honor to hear you speak so openly and honestly about your journey. Well, I love you. Love you too. Thanks, Nick. (laughs) Thank you so much. Hey, Broadway Builders listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on Instagram at BUA Belters Podcast. And if you're feeling extra supportive, go ahead and share today's episode with a friend. The Broadway Belters podcast was produced today by me, Nick Ferreo. Thank you for listening.